I'm John Golia. And I'm Greg Fife. And we are the, the Flight Safety, Safety Detectives. Detectives. We're just two guys who have spent most of their career with the National Transportation Safety Board investigating aircraft disasters and aviation safety issues all over the world. Yep, and this podcast is where we talk about everything from accidents, airplane technology, to the big business of aviation. We live and breathe aviation. My co-host, John, has been in the aviation business for more than 60 years. He was the first and only airframe and power plant mechanic to get a presidential appointment to the National Transportation Safety Board. And Greg is a former air safety investigator and go-team captain for the NTSB. He's investigated everything that flies worldwide since he started his career 40 years ago. And on top of that, he is a living legend of aviation inductee. So between John and myself, we have over 100 years of aviation safety experience. It's time to buckle up because it's going to be wheels up. Let's get this show in the air. Well, my friend, we are back again for another Flight Safety Detectives podcast. I wish that uh, after saying it so many times over the last three months that we were together in the studio, I'm going to say it again. I wish we were together in the studio. We are now into the third plus month of the COVID-19 lockdown, stay-at-homes, restricted movement environment. And while uh, things are starting to ease up, it still you know, has a dramatic effect on a variety of things we do both in our uh, personal lives and, of course, our aviation lives. So I'm glad that uh, we have this at least electronic ability to communicate and and do our podcast. So it's good to talk to you, and I hope that uh, you've been staying safe and uh, and the family's been well as they can be under the given circumstances. Yes, I've been staying locked down and staying away from everybody. I, I will admit that I'm quite tired of it. It's really a, a different feeling for me to stay home where I traveled so much before. But sign of the times, I certainly don't want to get sick at my age. Really? Well, I just got back from a trip. I did. Uh, I am now venturing out. I can't stay home, uh, unfortunately, trying to do wreckage inspections and do all the things I do with accident investigation and aviation safety. It's now incumbent upon me to travel. So uh, I did get on... Um, well, my favorite airline, United Airlines, coming out of Denver, heading to the East Coast, and um, I was fortunate because I'm now planning my schedule. There's not a lot of flights. Of course, there used to be 10 to 12 flights between uh, Denver and Washington, Dulles, or D.C. that I could choose from. I was down to three, and two of which were sold out. I took the, the last flight out, which was fortunate because I was on a 777. And um, I was sitting in first class. Fortunately, I had one of those cocoon-type sleeper seats. And the next closest person was two rows up and and three seats over. So we were able to uh, maintain our social distancing. And the back of the airplane wasn't full. So now my life, uh, when it comes to planning my my travel schedule, I'm going to be looking at those off-hour flights because – they don't have a lot of people, and um, you do have the ability to spread out a little more. So I didn't find that too much of a problem. The problem I really had, though, John, and I, I don't know when you're going to get back to traveling, but in uh, Denver International Airport, there are signs, they've talked about it on the news, that the airport requires 
anybody and everybody that comes into the terminal to be wearing a mask and it's posted everywhere on, you know, right next to the, uh, all of the uh, gate information for flights, everything. It's, it's a reminder. Masks must be worn. I get in there, I'm doing my thing. I'm walking through the terminal and I would, I would say that at least a third of the people in the part of the terminal I was in, whether it was in the terminal or concourse B where United airlines is, a third of those people weren't wearing masks at all, period. They didn't have it on their neck. They didn't have it in their hand. They didn't have them, period. And probably a third of that third had them on their neck, but never had them on their face. <laughs> and so, I mean, it's frustrating because, you know, the first question I ask is, you know, where's the airport and why aren't they enforcing this rule? They got it on a TV screen. Why not have people because that terminal area puts you by default in close proximity why didn't the airport security folks or the airport folks themselves or even the airlines because the gate agents there the ticket agents and stuff they weren't enforcing it from the standpoint of put your mask on before you walk up here and talk to me kind of thing it was enforced though when we got on the airplane wow so, you know, you try to do the right thing, but it's kind of like safety management systems that we've talked about on previous shows. And and that's, you know, a program that is very active in aviation where you're trying to identify risks, mitigate risks. But to have a successful SMS program, you have to have 100 percent buy in. And that was the first thing I really thought about was here we're trying to prevent a spread of a virus. Similar to having a program, an SMS program, where you need to have 100% buy-in to be successful, yet it's obvious we don't have 100% buy-in. And in some cases, it's because of that lack of buy-in, people abiding by the rule, we're spreading this and it still is proliferating in various areas of the country. Yeah, if we don't get smart, we're just going to keep this thing around forever. Yep. And, you know, for all of us to be sitting here hoping that, oh, yeah, you know, we'll we'll just live with it for a little while because there's a vaccine around the corner. I wouldn't hang your hat on that. By the time they trial it and uh, get it all tested and, and suitable and that kind of stuff, it could be well into next year. And you and I, John, cannot sit home until next year and do our respective jobs. So yeah, that's going to be a problem. Yep. So, I mean, I, I do the universal precautions. I, I'm not, you know, too proud or, you know, egotistical not to be wearing a mask and, and protecting myself and washing my hands 35 times an hour and, and doing all the things that are necessary to protect me, number one, but protect uh, other people that are in close proximity. And I just wish that uh, people would just get off their high horse. I know that there's a lot of conspiracy theorists out there who think this is a, a, a fake virus and that it's really the flu. Well, I mean, you know, you tell the over 100,000 people that have lost their life to this uh, virus that this is fake. So, yes, we've really cleaned out a lot of people. Nursing homes really took it uh, tough. A lot of uh, people lost their parents prematurely. So there's a lot of pain out there because of this virus. And when we when we talk about, you know, following the rules and, and the protocols and everything else, 
You know, you and I are in the aviation business and we're preaching that as a safety message all the time because we see when pilots deviate, when mechanics deviate, when management deviates, that's when trouble happens. And and again, it's it's nothing new. This isn't rocket science. And um, and so it is one of those things that if we're going to enhance aviation safety and get people back flying, especially on the commercial carriers, we have got to ensure these highest levels of safety and people have to participate in being part of the solution rather than being part of the problem. Good luck. Yeah, I know. This younger generation, just because they, they haven't been affected, they tend to ignore all the warnings. Yeah, it's frustrating. And, and again, I'm going to be back on the road again over the next two, three months. So, I mean, I don't have a choice, but uh, I'm going to do my part to protect myself and others. So I hope that, uh, you know, our travels uh, bring us together again so we can start doing podcasts face-to-face. Yeah, that would be nice. Well, you know, you raised this good question just moments ago about following procedures. In the FAA, before the, the, uh, everybody went to ground with this, this virus, the FAA had started down the road to really start promoting and encouraging people to follow the written procedures that have been developed and oftentimes written in somebody's blood. They're making an, a maximum push to publicize that and to get people to follow the published procedures. And we know in, in a number of accidents that they haven't followed the publicly available procedures, the maintenance manual procedures. And we also know that sometimes the procedures aren't enough. I mean, we're looking at a lot of mechanical issues today. And in fact, I want to talk to you about this, this accident that actually had a wing come off in flight. But, you know, we have an AD note out against an airplane, so we really lost an airplane in in Florida with a mechanical failure of the wing. So clearly on airplanes that have time on them, maybe these maintenance manual procedures and what we've looked at are not robust enough to catch everything. And it also gets to the cost of catching everything because it's really difficult sometimes. And you bring up a good point with the cost, John, and that is that you're identifying some sort of problem with an aircraft that's going to require a monetary fix, that is both for resources, parts, and that kind of stuff, the FAA, before they take it to its highest level of issuing an AD, they're doing a cost-benefit analysis to see what the economic impact is. And you and I come from a world, especially at the NTSB, where we don't put a price on safety. We could care less what it costs to make these improvements or enhance aviation safety based on things that have been found during the course of an acts investigation. And the board writes a recommendation to the FAA that you got to do this or writes it to the manufacturer that you got to do this. And next thing you know, they're weighing dollars against the safety enhancement. And we've talked about it and you mentioned it. And that is, you know, that some of these safety enhancements finally have come to fruition, but it's, it's taken a lot of blood to do it. And, um, and, and if pilots and mechanics and even management would follow those rules, the whole reason we put out these kinds of documents, whether it's a service bulletin, an airworthiness directive, you know, a safety advisory um, of some sort or anything else, the big thing is that people need to follow it. It's not just there for as a guidance document. 
it's there because somebody's paid the price in some way, shape, or form. And this is good information, and this is possibly going to save your life. Because if you don't do it, if you don't make the correction, you don't make the fix, you're going to find yourself as a pilot, a mechanic, or a manager in a place you don't want to be. How true. How true. Just this last week, John, I I track all the accidents. In the last seven days, June 1st to uh, July 8th period, there were seven accidents, seven fatal accidents around the country. And then there was one up in Canada with the Snowbird airplane, where it's presumed that the pilot that was killed um, in the uh, in the accident, um, she had uh, just taken off and was climbing with the with the team, and ended up pulling out of the formation due to some mechanical malfunction, lost the airplane, and um, and she was killed. But they're already presuming, based on some photographs and things like that, that she may have ingested a bird. Which we know that bird ingestions and turbine engines don't mix. They cause catastrophic failures and that kind of thing. But there's also going to be some extenuating, extenuating circumstances as to why she lost her life. And so, uh, but when you look at the, the seven other accidents that have occurred, they're general aviation accidents. They're here in the United States. Like you mentioned earlier, we recently had a five fatal in Georgia Due to an in-flight breakup, it was a, a turboprop aircraft, a Piper Cheyenne twin-engine airplane. It was being flown by the father of a woman who was on that airplane with her husband and their two young children. And they were going from Florida to, I believe, Indiana to attend a funeral. And unfortunately, as they were crossing through Georgia may have encountered a line of thunderstorms and uh, penetrated those thunderstorms. That'll be just one aspect that the NTSB will be looking at. But those kinds of accidents, as we've talked about in the past, in past shows where we're talking about the process of accident investigation, while the obvious may be weather, that line of weather and the airplane tried to penetrate it and it was uh, damaged due to turbulence or whatever they may have encountered in the weather, they also have to look at it from a mechanical standpoint because it may not have been weather or the weather may have exacerbated a pre-existing condition. So the board's going to have to look at the structural integrity of the airplane while the inspections were there issues with the wings or an engine or a propeller or some mechanical operation that may have contributed to the loss of five lives in one of these accidents. You know, most pilots and mechanics that work on general aviation aircraft that are not pressurized never feel like the uh, fatigue on the airplane reaches a point where it can cause problems. But the uh, FAA funded a research program a bunch of years ago. I was still at the board, so it's more than 15 years ago. Looking at older airplanes and fatigue, and they actually opened them up. They did destructive testing on a number of fuselages to see the conditions, and they were not happy with what they saw. Fatigue cracking in a lot of places, sometimes in some critical places. They changed some of the inspection methods, but they couldn't reach at all because of the cost involved. You know, and it hadn't progressed to the point, so 
And it's interesting you say that because I'm working a, an, an accident right now involving a uh, business jet, Canadair Challenger. The pilots were unable to stop the airplane on the runway, ended up going off the end of the runway. And the NTSB did an investigation and they found that a spring in one of the brake units had failed, which prevented the operation of the wheel brake on that particular side and had an adverse effect on all the brakes. And when when you look at it, that spring didn't have a time limit on it, no life limit. It was in a place that wouldn't normally be inspected either by a mechanic or definitely a pilot doing a walk around. And they just recently put out a um, safety bulletin about it. And when you look at those kinds of things, yeah, there are there are things that are going to happen with aircraft like you're talking about in normal service that will result in a serious incident or accident. But that's why the process of investigation is so important is to identify these issues so that, of course, we can prevent them from happening and not wait for three, four, five, six accidents to happen before any action is taken. Yes. I mean, we we need to be focusing lower and lower into the weeds on a lot of these accidents and not just the high spots. And I know that's always been a problem with the NTSB as well, as the cost of digging down into the weeds can be prohibitive on their part, as well as what they find may be very cost prohibitive on the industry side. But we really need to get that data collected at the very least so we can see the trends. Absolutely. And some of the other accidents that occurred, there was a four fatal. It was in a uh, Piper Cherokee PA-28. I think it was a fixed gear um, Dakota or something Archer. It was four young guys, all engineers had all gone to college together. They were heading off, I think, to Michigan somewhere. The pilot had texted a picture of all four of them in the airplane, texted it to his mother, I believe, if I remember the story correctly. And then uh, 15 minutes later, all four of those young men were dead. Something happened in the airplane. It was good weather, so I don't think weather will be an issue. But if it was some sort of mechanical malfunction or failure, of course, it's incumbent upon the pilot, especially if it's related to the engine or something like that, that pilots are trained for. It's going to be incumbent upon the pilot to take the corrective action. And of course, in this case, the board's going to have to try and determine what was the initiating event. Did the pilot handle it correctly? And if not, why? And why did these four young people lose their life? One Another accident I read not too far up the road from me in Wyoming. Of course, uh, you got a young guy flying with a passenger. They're flying low over a lake. Next thing you know, they're in the lake. Passenger was killed. Pilot survived. Fortunately, there were boaters out on the lake that fished him out of the water. And then I saw another accident in Illinois where it was an LSA or light sport aircraft being flown by an older gentleman who owned the airplane, crashed in a huge cornfield, wide open cornfield. So if there was a mechanical problem, the question is, why didn't this pilot successfully make it to, you know, a forced landing if he did have a problem that aircraft is equipped with a parachute a ballistic parachute the parachute from the pictures i saw hadn't been uh, deployed so that one will be interesting as well to see what was going on because he was right near an airport and the weather was good so it wasn't a weather issue the other one i read was uh three fatal 
in California where it, I can't remember the type of airplane, but it appears that the weather was lousy. They were in mountainous terrain. And from all of the blogs and comments that I read online, the immediate speculation was that these guys were scud running in an area of high terrain. And while that may also be true, and the board's going to have to try and figure that out, again, you can't hang your hat on it, even though the weather was bad. You can't hang your hat on it. You have to go through and actually examine the aircraft just to make sure there was no mechanical malfunction or failure. Because you could have had a pilot who, yeah, he may have been scud running, but he could have gotten a pop-up IFR clearance and then tried to, to actually do the right thing. But but for the fact of a mechanical malfunction or failure or instrument problem, they uh, they ended up crashing. So, I mean, there were a lot of accidents, John, with a lot of fatalities in a very short period of time. We're coming into this general aviation flying season. People are getting out now after the COVID-19 restrictions and lockdowns. And, and this is really a time where pilots who haven't been uh, in the cockpit for a while need to take you know a day and just get back into the books get your head back into flying you know it's always good i'm i'm constantly because of the nature of my job and your job it forces us to be in the books but we're looking at a variety of different aircraft we're looking at the rules and regulations and and techniques and practices so we're able to stay up with it as part of our daily duties, but the general run-of-the-mill general aviation pilot needs to get their head back into the books before they actually start that engine and fly away. You know, you get rusty driving. There's just an alert that was put out today by the New York State Police reminding everybody about driving on the highways, people that haven't been driving in the last several months. Take a little bit of time before you start driving on the highway and make sure you're comfortable with it. And I know nobody's going to do that. They're going to jump on their car and go. And I'm sure a lot of pilots have the same mentality. They're just going to go, I'm going to go flying. I was flying the first of the year. I can fly again now. And you get rusty. You forget things. How many people run out of fuel? Talking about forgetting things. Do they forget to check it? Right? Are they so worried about the expenses that they try to squeeze every last ounce in the tank to get back to home because home's fuel is 10 cents a gallon cheaper. That is a point, John. You bring it up. It drives me nuts. These pilots who think they're going to save three cents, four cents a gallon by trying to milk their airplane to another airport. First off, that's stupid because, again, gas gauges aren't reliable. And if you think you have enough gas to go to your you know, next local airport 35 miles away and you run out 20 miles short, you know, that's on you. And oh, by the way, if you think you're going to save five cents a gallon, guess what? You just burned up all that savings going to and from. <laughs> so, I mean, the economics just doesn't work at the expense of busting an airplane. But we still have. Not this year, but I'm sure it'll change this year. But in previous years, we still have four or 500 airplanes a year that crash because they run out of fuel. Yeah. And it's just, it, it's atrocious and definitely just sad state of affairs that in in this day and age, 
we are still running out of gas. You have pilots who are trying to milk it, like you said. They're trying to push home or they're trying to push their destination. It's just over there. They aren't doing all of the in-route performance updates that they should be to make sure that they're checking winds aloft and that their initial calculations are still going to be good at the end of the trip. I mean, they get very complacent. And yeah, we have all that nice whiz-bang stuff in an airplane these days. And I carry it on my uh, on my iPad as well. You can do fuel performance through any one of the a number of ForeFlight or, or WingX or Garmin's MyPilot or whatever app you may be using. You can do all the aircraft performance. You got the updated information. You put a timer on there because if you're following your gas gauge, you're nuts. Because we all learned the first time we got in an airplane that one of the most unreliable systems in a general aviation airplane is the fuel gauges. You fly by time. And it's just sad that that message for all of these years, we still can't convey that message that, you know what, you should never run out of gas in an airplane. That's embarrassing. Yeah, well, a lot of people lost their lives so they don't have to suffer the embarrassing moment, but they, their families have to suffer the sudden loss of one or more of their family members because of it. And most people don't realize, and even some mechanics don't realize, that the fuel gauges aren't that accurate. Sometimes you can calibrate them, and I've certainly calibrated more than my share, but sometimes you can calibrate them so that they're, they're close to being accurate. But if you make them very accurate on the lower end to show the empty when it is in fact empty, uh, sometimes it's not so accurate on the upper end. It'll be off showing full when it really is only three quarters. The older systems are not as robust as the modern ones. And you know what? Even today, after saying what I just said, uh, the 777 was built in 95 with a then state-of-the-art fuel system. I think it was ultrasonic, but whatever the technology, it was state-of-the-art. And now just this past week, the FAA has put Boeing on notice that they have to correct the inaccuracies in their fuel systems. And I guess it's been going on for quite some time. And the FAA finally said, we've had enough. With general aviation airplanes, a lot of pilots out there, they think they know their airplane, but every airplane has its, its own idiosyncrasies. You don't have that airplane on a level ramp and you have the airplane refueled. You think you got full fuel and you don't. You got one tank that's a lot lower than the other. There's a number of airplanes that we've investigated over the years where guys have either had fuel starvation because they ran a tank dry and failed to switch in time to get the fuel out of the other tank, or they exhausted the fuel in the system because they had flight planned for full tanks when, in fact, during the refueling, they never had a full load of, of fuel. It's that kind of detail and intimacy with the airplane that you're flying to know those kinds of characteristics and nuances. And of course, we've had the misfueling accidents. That is where you've told the lineman, hey, fill it up, you know, all the way to the top or to the tabs. And next thing you know, you come out, you take off, and you lose the engine. Find out that they put Jet A in the airplane because it said turbocharged on the side. The lineman didn't. He thought it was a, a, a turbine-powered airplane and put Jet A in there instead of uh, 100 low let. We still have those, even though we t we put decals on the filler neck. We changed the, the, the size of the nozzle. We still Guys still manage to get the wrong fuel in the airplanes. It's amazing. And it's just, that's why it's so incumbent upon us as pilots 
who have that final authority for the safe operation of the airplane to exercise that authority and basically do like the sign says, do the right thing even when nobody's looking. You know, shortcutting the process is only detrimental to yourself and those that are going to be in that aircraft. And that's a disservice. And if nothing else, if you don't want to do it for yourself, fine. But either tell the people that you're flying with, you know what, (laughs) stay home because I'm going to do this and I'm not going to do that. Or don't put anybody in the airplane. I mean, it's just you don't want to put their their lives in jeopardy. And it's just sad that, you know, that careless and reckless type attitude is still prevalent after lesson after lesson after lesson from other accidents. The can't happen to me attitude still prevails. And it actually transcends the the uh, general the the real general aviation community and moves into the corporate environment. You know, I, I oftentimes go to the airport. I I've said that repeatedly on here, and I'll probably go to the airport tomorrow. And I sit just sit there and watch. And the particular FBO that I go to, uh, there's a second floor that overlooks the boarding area for the airplanes, and I can sit there and look in the cockpit and watch the crews go through their checklist. And I can't tell you how many times that I have seen the first officer will be there and he'll be doing the checklist all alone. I can see him with the checklist in his hand and I can see him looking up and and flipping switches or looking down and and, uh, doing whatever the task called for while the captain is either inside or out greeting the passengers. And then after they come out and they get the passengers on board, he's watching the line guys throw the bags in the back of the airplane usually. And uh, he comes up the stairs, pulls them up, gets in the cockpit, and a minute later, the engines are running. So the, there was no uh, response, check and respond. It was simply the first officer did it, and the captain relied upon it, and away they go. Light the fire. and How do you say it? Light the fire. and Kick the tires, light the fire, and let's rock and roll. <laughs> so I see that on a regular basis, too regular. It's just uh, that becomes the norm, and we end up with another one. And, and the only reason why I do that is because of the crash that occurred at Hanscom. It's Hanscom's the airport I'm going to. The crash that occurred at Hanscom outside of Boston with that Gulf Stream that killed a couple of very wealthy people because the, the captain didn't do the checklist. The recorders showed that he didn't do the checklist. hundred and Out of 172 flights, he failed to do it. And I forget the numbers now. All but a, just a handful. He didn't do the checklist. I mean, it was, that was just a, that was an accident just waiting to fill the date in. And we've got to dissect that. We've got to use that accident because there are some great learning lessons and human factors issues in that particular accident. The fact that these guys had flown together a long time, uh, they were comfortable with each other. It was one of those things where the boss called, said, be ready to roll. And, you know, when he showed up, they closed the door, fired up because they've done it six million times before. They never did a flight control check, which is just imperative. I don't care what aircraft and what pilot, you know, type of pilot you are. You have got to wiggle the stick to make sure that all the flight controls are free and clear because you just don't know. And unfortunately, they never did that with the gust lock still engaged. And that's a big issue that I have some concerns about because I don't think the NTSB got it totally right or dissected it completely right with regard to the human factors. But we'll get into that when we dissect it. But the fact is you bring what you bring up is that you get that complacency. 
The other real question now is with pilots coming out of hibernation and getting in their general aviation airplanes, single pilot. I read the checklist out loud so I can hear myself go through the checklist. When I had my Comanche, I had that almost 30 years. I knew that checklist inside, outside, left, right, and center, but I still read it out loud just to hear myself go through each of them to make sure I didn't miss something. And a lot of pilots don't do that. They think it's embarrassing. Why would I sit there in the cockpit and talk to myself? Because it helps to hear yourself think and say the words so that you don't miss these items. Because I've done accidents where one missed item on a checklist, and I'll give you an example. There was a Convair that was being operated by Republic Airlines. It was being operated between um, Brainerd, Minnesota, and Minneapolis. It's a very short flight, and uh, the crew got on the airplane, and during the course of doing their checklist, the uh, flight attendant came up and gave them a passenger count, and she interrupted them while they were doing the checklist. When they resumed the checklist, they didn't go back and start all over again. They tried to pick up where they left off or where they thought they left off, and in doing so, they missed one critical item on that checklist. And it was windshield heat. Airplane takes off. They're up at altitude. It gets cold soaked. It was in the wintertime. It gets cold soaked. They're on the approach going into Sioux Falls, South Dakota. On the approach, captain's flying the airplane. Final approach, a two-pound duck came right through that window and basically hit the captain square in the face, incapacitated him. Fortunately, the first officer had enough presence of mind to get on the controls and and complete the landing, but the captain was seriously injured. Why? Because one missed item, one missed critical item on a checklist, and that critical item was the windshield heat, which would have tempered the window to prevent that duck when it hit the window from coming through it. Yes, and why is it always when we miss something, it's the critical thing we miss? Yeah. You know, you, you just wonder sometimes. Yeah, it's not like you missed the landing light. You missed this critical element of uh, windshield heat. Either they've escaped it or it's just the fact that luck meant that you missed the one. But, boy, that's interesting. You know, we touched upon the, the NTSB a couple times in the conversation about investigations. And one of the things from questions that we have, and I'll I'll comment on, on one of the questions that have, people have sent to us, is how deep does the NTSB go? The NTSB's charge is only to go to, to find the probable cause. And they go beyond that very often, in fact, probably the majority of times, and get down into the minutiae to get all the facts. But they don't do that on every accident. And there's a lot of reasons why they don't do it, and some of which are financial, you know, they have a budget they have to live under as well. And some of it is workload. Certain times of the year, we have a lot of accidents. In fact, prime time is coming up here in the summer because of all the GA flying. And so human resources are thin. So you don't always get every single tidbit from every accident. If they get to the probable cause, oftentimes they feel comfortable with just staying there. But you have to go beyond the obvious also. Pilot lost control for unknown reasons is not good enough. Yes, we see a lot of those. You don't even have to leave the office to figure that out. You can just write that as a standard line. There's always a reason. It all depends on how much you develop from the investigation, what that reason may have been. 
And while you may not be able to put an absolute fact to it, you can develop enough information because that's why it's called the probable cause and not the cause. Because the probable cause is based on the best available information that you've been able to develop, the facts, conditions, and circumstances to support that this is a reasonable conclusion. If it was the cause, then that means that you'd have all the facts, you'd know exactly what happened. The only time you probably can say the cause of the accident, and it's not an accident, is when somebody does something as an intentional act, suicide. Even then, that's hard to prove. When you look at suicide, and there have been a number, I've investigated a number of them throughout my career. People have left notes behind and said, I'm going to do this. And of course, they went out and did it. That's absolute certainty. But short of that, which doesn't happen very often, thank goodness, the board calls it probable cause for a reason. They develop as many facts, conditions, and circumstances. They derive the probable cause or the conclusions based on those facts. You just have to make sure, like you said, John, you dig deep enough to get all of those facts, conditions, and circumstances so that you can have a fruitful probable cause because it's the probable cause and the elements of that cause that are going to enhance aviation safety. Yes. Sometimes in the GA community, that's very difficult to get to the bottom of every accident. It is. But again, I mean, those are the types of things that, I mean, that's why the board has an investigative staff and a pretty good budget. You have to spend the time. It's a disservice if you just write that off to a pilot error accident or loss of control for unknown reasons. That's a disservice, not only to the family, but to aviation as well, because those underlying factors or causes are the things that we use in safety to go out and preach the safety message, to reinforce why pilots need to do certain things or mechanics need to do certain things. So it is very imperative that you develop, you spend the time. I don't care. I had a backlog when I worked for the board when I was a field investigator, but I owed it to the family to do a thorough and methodical investigation. I didn't care what my backlog was. It was eventually going to get done. But I knew that when I wrote that report and it was published, that was the best effort I could give it under the time constraints. Why don't we take a shot at giving some pointers, given we had seven accidents in a week, actually eight if you count the Canadian one. You know, so bird strikes. There's not much you can do about a bird strike. You know, if there's birds reported in the area, you need to pay attention to it. And, you know, using the airport facility directory, if you're going to an airport that you're not familiar with or you know that it's going to be in a place, you know, you're going to a backwoods airport or a little airport in the, the Catoctin Mountains or whatever, the Blue Ridge Mountains, you know that there's going to be the woods and, and birds are going to be a potential. You go to the airport facilities directory, you're going to see notes in that directory, and they may say, birds migrating at the end of the runway. We have a, a migration out here at Bar Lake. That used to be a huge issue when old Stapleton International Airport was in existence, and it has some some effect on the Denver International Airport now. It's because uh, there, Bar Lake is a migratory place for bald eagles 
and hawks and that kind of stuff. So there were always a lot of birds. So the best thing is, is that you become familiar with the airport that you're going to, especially if you've never been there before, because you will see notes or possibly see notes that there are birds in the in the vicinity of that particular airport or or present a hazard. This is the fiftieth anniversary of the Eastern Airlines crash into Boston Harbor for bird strike. And they're planning a big public awareness campaign around that. Oh, they were before the virus hit. I don't know if it's still going forward. And we know that we know that birds are an issue because that's that was the basis for a miracle on the Hudson. Yep. On that Eastern Airlines crash, I happened to be there to pull out some. Uh, oh, I was there for the recovery, but there was nobody to recover, so it turned into a to a I mean a rescue, and then uh, it turned into recovery. Sixteen years old, I was pulling people out of the water. What was left of some of them? That's too bad. Yeah, it's good. You know, when you're young, you're, you're invincible. It, I don't think it had a lasting effect on me, but uh, except that I hate birds around the airports. Yep. Absolutely. I feed them in my backyard, but I shoot them all at the airport. <laughs> well, the other thing is when it comes to pulling your airplane out, you know, since a lot of people haven't flown in quite a long time and the airplane's been basically a hangar queen for two, three, four months, it's imperative that you do a thorough pre-flight. You get into the nooks and crannies that you wouldn't normally look at on a normal pre-flight where you know that you've been flying an airplane on a regular basis. Um, there are going to be critters and, and all sorts of things that you're going to find, especially in the empennage, uh, tight spaces. Of course, the pedo tubes on general aviation airplanes where you got the, the possibility of bugs, wasps, that kind of stuff. So it's imperative that you do a top-to-bottom, front-to-back, very thorough pre-flight examination of the aircraft just to make sure that all systems are go. Of course, the fuel. Yeah, you may have parked the airplane with full fuel tanks, but there could be a lot of sediment that has migrated down into the lowest parts of that fuel system. So it's really imperative to do a good job in um, in sumping the tanks. The one thing I found with this airplane that uh, I've been working on that's been in Georgia and sitting for quite a long time is that we found a lot of water in the oil. And the reason we found it was because it is sitting in a very humid environment, it was condensation. And the airplane was hangered, but it was the condensation from the heat cycles when the hangar would get hot, get cool, get hot, get cool. A lot of the condensation built up and, of course, migrated into the oil. We ended up having to put uh, basically 16 quarts of oil through that oil system just to flush the water out of it before we actually put in six quarts of good oil and that kind of stuff. So it's those little things, the things you don't think about. That's what's going to bite you after not flying that aircraft for a while. And again, getting back into the books, knowing your speeds, especially, you know, your best glide speeds, of course, uh, takeoff or approach speeds when you have a light load versus heavy load stall speeds for sure. So getting your head back in the game uh, when you pull that airplane out of the hangar so that you are prepared because that first flight after sitting for two or three months could be exciting. You don't want exciting. Well, you want good exciting, yes. not bad exciting. <laughs> yes. So I'm, as you were talking, I was looking at this four fatal in Illinois 15 minutes after takeoff. I always think about these things when everything's perfect. Was the right fuel tank selected? 
you know, he might have had enough fuel on board, but was it in the right place and was the right the selective drawing from the right place? Yep. Or, like you said, did he have the selector in the right place? Just because it's pointing right, if that selector isn't in the detent, you may not get the fuel flow. Yeah, or it might be restricted. Yep. Yeah. We've seen that before. Yep, absolutely. And then, of course, uh, with this in-flight breakup, if it is weather-related, it is imperative, given the fact that we are now in summertime in the United States. I don't care if you're east, west, or in the middle. Weather's going to change. Winds aloft are going to change. And, of course, trying to traverse a line of thunderstorms to make it to destination because you have to be there. I, I don't know how many accidents I've investigated. I don't know how many safety presentations I've given. You can't, I don't care what equipment you have on the airplane. I don't care that you have updated weather from XM weather and all that other stuff. The fact is, is that weather's going to change faster than it's de depicted on your on your system. And you can't penetrate that stuff. You may be able to go over the top of it if you have the right airplane. You definitely can go around it. And yes, it's going to extend the time. But I guarantee by taking those precautions and really understanding the movement and the, and the conditions, the environment that you're going to be flying into, you're actually going to make it to destination alive, getting off the airplane rather than the way these unfortunate five folks may have passed away trying to traverse a thunderstorm. Sometimes I wonder what goes through the minds of some of these GA pilots. You know, the airlines with a full-time weather department at their at their mercy, all kinds of support for the pilots, still end up with nightmares flying into thunderstorms. And and you and I, the first accident we worked together was related to a thunderstorm in Charlotte, North Carolina. And there's an airline with all kinds of support mechanisms for the pilot, and the pilot still got themselves in, in a difficult situation. And yet the GA guy will look at his iPad and say, oh, the weather's fine, and never look at it again. Exactly. American 1420, the chief pilot for American Airlines in the Chicago base. They try to land in a uh, level five thunderstorm with a 76 knot microburst. They go off the end of the runway and the captain was killed, as well as 11 other people on that airplane. All they had to do was sit in a holding pattern for 30 minutes and let that line of thunderstorms move through and land on the backside. It was severe clear. The stars were out. I mean, that's the decision making. And you really have to weigh it. And unfortunately, sometimes our egos and the clock affect the decisions that are made by pilots. And those two things are two elements that can never be used as a factor in determining whether you go or no go. You know, that accent is a good one because there's a lot of, a lot of uh, things that you can talk about on the side that didn't even make the report or how, how certain things did make the report. So we ought to put that on the list for do one of those in the near future. Absolutely. Well, there's, uh, you know, these tips and tricks and just, it's a, it's a good reminder. You're a general aviation pilot, you're a business aviation pilot. You know, the things that we talk about aren't just targeted for one particular aspect of aviation. Everything we talk about applies across the board. And the biggest thing is we're coming into now, fortunately, and hopefully 
a busy aviation season, which is good for aviation. We've got to get airplanes and people back in the air in some way, shape, or form. We all have airplanes or an interest in aviation to do that. Of course, we want the mechanics and and the airlines back to work as well. So these are the kinds of things. But you got to remember that, you know, we've all come off this three-month hiatus from a lot of things that we've been doing in our, our normal daily life. Don't take it for granted that just because the airplane has been parked in the hangar, that it's good to go. And don't believe that just because you've been parked in your personal hangar, that is your home for three months, that you as a pilot or a mechanic are sharp and ready to go back to work or go back and and do the things that you love to do, like fix airplanes or fly airplanes. You got to make sure that you've gauged, you know, your competence, your proficiency, your currency, because it's the little things. It's the insidious things that are going to get you in trouble, not the obvious things necessarily. Not the big things. It's sometimes just the the littlest detail that eats you up. Yeah. Speaking of details, one of the things, John, that we've now been on the air, uh, what, seven months, eight months now with our podcasts, and we appreciate greatly the audience that we have, the feedback that we're getting all the time. And, um, and of course, we're trying to make the show better. Uh, fortunately or unfortunately, COVID has, uh, it has affected the, the way we present the material because we want to have a live show. We want to do our video podcast as well. And we're still working on doing all of these things. But not only does it take time and the ability for John and I to be together so that we can basically do all of these shows in the same, in the same room, but it takes money and, and resources. And that's the thing that John and I have been doing quite a bit of. And that is we do our own research. We talk with experience. We try to get folks on that are a different voice that are subject matter experts, but we want to continually expand this and make this show a lot better. And by doing that, we think that we're going to have more opportunities to talk about more interesting things and dissecting accidents like we initially started doing. But we need donations and we definitely need sponsors because these shows aren't free. And John and I have been utilizing our own personal resources to keep these shows going and, and really talk about things that are of interest in aviation. And we've been soliciting donations and it doesn't have to be big. It's just think about if you like the show, throw some money at it because that helps us. It doesn't go to John and I to pay a salary or anything else. It goes to producing the show because it does cost money to promote the show. We have a uh, promoter who writes up all of the information about that particular show that you read on the blog or on our website about what this show is going to be about. And then, of course, we have our production company. So when John and I record these podcasts, we send it off to the production company for them to clean up the the show, clean up some of the background noise and, and make the show a high quality. But all of that takes money. And of course, we're always looking for a big sponsor with regard to the show. It doesn't have to necessarily be an aviation sponsor. If you like the show, uh, we talk about a variety of things uh, from luggage to nutrition. Uh, one of the things that 
you know, pilots are concerned about is, of course, are you fit to fly? Well, good nutrition, health food, all that kind of stuff is essential for us in aviation. And so if there's a food company out there or whatever that wants to uh, to be a sponsor, we'll talk about the fact that they have a product that pilots would, you know, possibly use or mechanics or someone else. So it doesn't necessarily have to be aviation, but we we would really appreciate sponsors and definitely donations. And John, I know that, uh, you know, in your neck of the woods, you've been locked up, but uh, you're itching to go to get some folks to sponsor the show as well. Yes. I mean, it's, I'll tell you what, just speaking personally, I never realized how expensive these shows can be to do them right. You know, and when, when I go around and look at some of the other podcasts and stuff on YouTube, you can tell they're amateur programs just because of the way they're presented in the background noise and, and so on and so on. And I'm glad we spent the money, painfully spent the money that we have to, to have everything edited. But it, we do need help to keep this going. Well, we, again, appreciate all of the feedback that we get from our listeners. You can always contact us via email at flightsafetydetectives, with an S on the end, at gmail.com. We really enjoy getting the feedback, the comments, and, uh, and it, it gives John and I, uh, you know, some fodder for us to bounce back and forth, especially when somebody says, well, I don't necessarily agree with what you said. And, and so John and I have this discussion and this debate, and we try to bring it to the air as well, because we may not address that particular email directly. But in coming up with a subject that we're going to talk about, you may hear the answer or at least the argument from both sides. So we definitely appreciate folks you know, providing us their input, what they want to hear, what they want us to talk about. A lot of the last uh, previous recently uh, recorded shows are based on emails and what people wanted us to get more detailed about in our discussions. And so that's what makes this show go. Uh, John and I have our own personal views and some of the things that we believe need to be discussed as current events or enhancements to safety. So we want to make this a family-friendly show, so we try to watch what we say when we get on our soapboxes and that kind of stuff. But it's all about education and enhancing safety through education because right now, again, we talk about running out of gas. We've been talking about running out of gas in airplanes since the Wright brothers started flying, and we, we still can't seem to get that message across. So these are the kinds of things that all we're here to do is, is provide tips and tricks and, and just a better understanding of situations and some of the safety issues that are going on. So, again, we really appreciate it. Keep the feedback coming. Give us a rating on uh, your podcast provider because that, too, helps us attract sponsors and, and that kind of thing. So the better the rating or the more ratings we get, the, the more likely that uh, we're going to be able to get some good sponsors for this show. Keep us going and allow us to, to grow like we want to grow. So with that, John, I've shot off my mouth. I will let you close us out. Okay, everybody, I, we're grateful for your listening. And please do donate and do comment. I mean, I threw a few comments uh, that came in into this discussion today. And actually, while we were on the phone, I got another comment that came in while we were on the recording. We had another comment came into my phone. So I know people are out there listening. 
and are enjoying it. So please help us continue it. And please fly safe and stay safe in your personal life. To listen to more episodes of the show, go to flightsafetydetectives.com or the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association at PAMA.org and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Catch us next time when John Golia and Greg Fife talk about all things aviation. Thanks for listening.